John, we welcome you. Sure, thank you. <laughs> it's always fun to be with you guys. And although things might be a little bit different now, um, I'd probably like to just explain first about why we're doing things a bit different. And that's because it's important that we um, consider why we do things. And there's nothing wrong in sometimes stopping and thinking things through. We've got government recommendations saying that we shouldn't meet in large gatherings. And as far as possible from us, we want to be able to comply with that. But then, of course, you get the critics that say, hey, aren't you a man of faith and believe that the virus will die when it touches you or touches you? And I want to address some of these issues before I get into the word this morning because it's important that we do. I have no objections to meeting people and even spending time with people. But I do believe it's important for us to honour our government. I believe in divine health. I believe in three stages. I believe in the ability of healing and seeing healing manifest. I believe in, if you like, the next stage where we begin to stop any sickness coming close to us. And the ultimate stage is to live in the blessing of God and in health. And I believe that. I have, however, seen so many times, especially within the faith context, so many die still believing that. And there's been a lot of emails going around, a lot of um, Facebook posts making all sorts of statements saying, I'm going to be all right, but for your sake. And I think if you have that revelation, that's fine. But not everyone has that revelation. And so when people quote to me and say, well, John G. Lake, he, when the forest touched him and it was put on his palm, it died. I went, great. But let me ask you a question. Where was John G. Lake at the time? He wasn't in church. He was out helping, doing anything he could to demonstrate the love of God to the people that were sick. And that's important that we realise that. Because if you have a revelation of divine health, which I hope and pray you do, don't sit at home and moan. Volunteer in any way you can. I know food banks are looking for volunteers. In some cases, you'll find the NHS is looking for volunteers. Go ahead. Put your faith into practice and volunteer. Go shopping for people. Khan and I picked up some medicine for some friends of ours, and I'm so glad they weren't there because it was absolutely freezing standing in a queue outside. And we were slowly called forward one by one. And I thought, if this is the way that medicine now is dispensed, you could catch a cold, or worse, just by going to get your medicine. So can I encourage you, if you believe in divine health, which I do, get out and help. Volunteer in any way that you can to demonstrate God's love. 
because that is so important in this time. It might be doing your neighbour shopping. Go out and do it. Put your faith where your mouth is. Don't criticise anyone. Some may not have that. We talked a couple of weeks ago here in church where we looked at disputes about different, if you like, swabbling practices. Some eat meat. Some only <coughs> drink water and first those kind of issues. But this actually falls into that category. Don't destroy someone else's faith. But look to build someone up. So that's why we're changing the way we're meeting. Not because, in a sense, we have to, but because we believe in the truth. But we also believe in that's honour the government that we're in. If it becomes a matter of conscience, that's a whole different ballpark. Where if it then contravenes our core belief system, well then... I will be the first to stand up and say, hey, let's make a stand for our faith. But why we aren't in that category, let's honour our government and do everything we can to demonstrate the love of God. And you never know, you may get to see some miracles. Because John G. Lake's legacy is that now, People are looking to see the supernatural healing. And I believe that as Christians, it's a sign of our belief. We haven't arrived yet, but we're heading that way. And so from that perspective, that's why we are going to do things differently. So let's get on to the word. I think it's really important, following some of the... Um, teaching that we've done together where we talked about Paul's discipleship we talked about um, Thessalonians and how the Thessalonian church was established in about three weeks and a few months later they had gone to the next main city and one of the things I'm studying at the moment and so it's real revelation and it brought me back to a scripture which I just love and uh, if any of you listening to this are in some form of isolation, can I actually recommend that you do what we will discover as we study together? And that is give thanks. And that sounds so simple. Give thanks. But you ask a Christian, okay, go and give thanks. And they say, well, what for? And that's always shocked me from very young age. I remember going up to our parish priest as a, a very, well, probably four or five, and saying, you say it's our duty and our joy, but I never see you smile. Why? And the priest turned to me and said, well, inside I'm smiling. I said, great. But I don't see that. Why? And that statement comes a really important part of, if you like, a traditional church service, which is the absolution. And I love the absolution. The earliest records of Christians coming together has this statement, which we call the absolution. Now, being a physicist, I love absolutes because it's absolute. It doesn't change. 
It's not something that you feel good one day and not the next. It's absolute. So an absolution is absolute. And so many of our Christian lives, we don't actually understand the depth of the forgiveness that we have in God. See, I do with Bible college students, or when we do worship, or actually quite often when we don't have the worship team available, I say to them, right, get ready, off you go, now give thanks. And when they first say that to a Bible college student, they turn around and they kind of look a bit puzzled. But after three or four times, suddenly it cottons on what they're giving thanks for. That I'm forgiven. And forgiveness is such an incredible, powerful tool. It's a state that's totally unique. Because in no other faith, in quotes, do they have the absolute forgiveness of God. And so I want to this morning cover an encounter with religion. I think it's probably the best way to call it. So in your Bibles or your iPads, or tablets, or whatever you have. I've actually got an actual Bible today. <laughs> I've got my tablet as well, because I've got my notes as normal. Um, we're going to look at Luke 7, and 36 to 50. And it's a great passage. <coughs> the first time I really sat and visualized this passage, and one of the things I want to encourage you if you've got time on your hands visualize scripture and so as we work through this i'm going to paraphrase it there's going to be a lot of my understanding put in only because i want to do it and i'm teaching so i can but how i visualize it luke chapter 7 verse 36 and it goes like this then one of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Well, actually, it means to recline, to eat. Um, so just get this picture. <coughs> Jesus goes into a Pharisee's house. Now, I know there's all sorts of things about isolation. So you can really visualize it if you are in isolation at the moment. But Jesus walks in to a Pharisee's house. He's quite a noble Pharisee. We get to know that later on in the account. And in that perspective, we have to think about, well, what does it actually mean to go and eat in a Pharisee's house? Well, they didn't have glass. Glass was around at the time, but they didn't normally have it in windows. And if you invited a speaker or someone famous the whole village or town would gather around to watch. And so there would probably be either one or several little tables, about 18 inches or 45 centimetres, I think, thereabouts, <laughs> high. And servants would come in and lay different foods around and they'd move them around because you were reclining and you weren't meant to move. You weren't meant to struggle. So Jesus had come in and reclined at the table. And there'd be a lot of chitter-chatter going around. They would be talking. And people would come in to watch. They would want to know, what are you feeding him? What arrangements have you got? How, how are things done? 
to the point that some people would actually even come into the room itself from the public outside, and they would sit on the floor around and listen and watch. Others would cram in at the window. And so it's unsurprising that we see the next section. And behold, now Luke writes it really uniquely in the sense of out of surprise. In other words, it's not a normal person that's coming in. And we miss that because we just read behold. But Luke recalls it uniquely and it's like, behold, someone that you don't really want in has just walked in. And we can see that from the sense of a woman in the city who was a sinner. Other words, a prostitute. They could tell from her demeanour, the way she dressed, her actions, who she was. And diplomatically, one might say, Luke records it as, well, it's a woman of the city who was a sinner. Very diplomatic, thank you, Luke. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. We'll come to that in a minute especially when it gets used, because that's actually quite an important point. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Now, imagine this. A woman who's dressed as a prostitute, which actually meant probably not in their normal attire, comes in and stands behind Jesus. She's crying and she's weeping. Now, custom would dictate that she would be ignored. She's a member of the public who has just come in. Normally ignored. In fact, she's crying. Well, let's just ignore that one. But then we see, she must have bent down for this, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil that was in the alabaster char. Now, I know at the moment, if this actually happened, she would be told off because it's no kind of physical contact and all the rest of it. Well, it was quite similar back then for someone who would come in off the street and then stand behind Jesus and then begin to pass bodily fluids onto his feet with her tears and to have her hair showing in that manner. Well, that was totally out of order. because she would have got down at his feet to clean them. So, again, they were dirty. We, we discovered that a little bit later on. Verse 39. And when the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself. In other words, he didn't make it public. It was his thinking that he was commenting, saying... This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And so you've got this incredible picture of a prostitute coming in, standing behind Jesus. Now, 
it was so unusual, you can just let your imagination go into that picture. People reclining round a table, the servants coming in, laying food before them, and they'd be leaning across, not too much effort, to pick up and eat and chat amongst themselves. Everyone else in the room should be silent. It's very impolite to speak when you're not an invited guest. Especially if you're crouching at the window looking at Jesus. This prostitute comes in weeping. It's very difficult for someone to weep quietly. You can shed a few tears, but the word used here means she was making a little noise. Now, what would normally happen in a situation like that? Well, not that that's normal, actually, thinking about it. What would happen? You'd find everyone would be looking at her. I was going to use an idiom then that you may not understand. But they would be looking at her in a way, thinking, what on earth is this woman doing? And, And actually, Luke records that, saying to himself, hey, the criticism, I don't know whether afterwards Luke asked more questions of him or not, but we see in this context... Luke records that he said to himself, she's a sinner. Now, there's a lot of commotion going on. We know that from verse 40, because Jesus answered and said to him, well, we're not sure. How did Jesus know how to answer? Well, actually, the word there really shouldn't be a word answer. It's actually much more exciting. It's apokrimomai, which is an incredible word from the context because it literally means to quiet everyone down in response or to make a speech. You know, certain things that you do and you learn when you learn to public speak, one of the things that I got told is before you stand up, and I always forget to do it these days, is to take a deep breath. (sighs) And it calms you down before you begin to speak. No, I always forget to do that. But it's very useful if you don't know how you're going to start on something to take that deep breath before you start. And Jesus kind of does that. So what Jesus does is he calls everyone around the table who have been, I want to use the word gawking, but I'm not sure everyone would understand gawking, looking with such intent upon her, (coughs) He calls them to attention. And calling them to attention, Jesus then announces to Simon, and he uses the name Simon. It's a bit like turning around to Supreme and saying saying in the middle, Supreme, I have something to say to you. Everyone in the room would go quiet and look at Jesus. Up to this point, most of them were looking at the woman. It was so unusual to have a prostitute in a Pharisee's room. And yet, they're all looking at this woman, so Jesus draws attention and says, excuse me, I think we'd probably say that in English, Simon, I have something to say to you. Everyone stops and says, wow, okay thinking it's actually going to be in response to the woman to ask someone to take her out. 
That's probably what's going through some of their minds, but, you know, that's my supposition. Take it or leave it. And Simon responds and says, teacher. And it's interesting, the term used, it's not a Hebraic, it's a Greek term, which is dekos kalos, as in teacher, someone that would lead a debate. He didn't turn around and say, okay, rabbi. So he wasn't giving any spiritual authority to Jesus at this point. Jesus is just given as the person that has been invited to eat. So it gives you a kind of insight into the kind of reaction that actually Simon was a bit like, I'm a Pharisee. And you're just a teacher that's roaming around. That kind of attitude we can read into this. So then Jesus gives this interesting account. And let's read it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing to which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Jesus turns the whole segment round because he gives a question to Simon. Now, it's Simon's house. Now, you know when you go to someone's house, it's like when you do meetings, you've got to be careful when they're in people's houses. Because if you're going to think that you're going to have confrontation with them, it's best not to do it in their house. Just a hint. And here, in Simon's house, Jesus then puts Simon on the spot. You can feel that Simon suddenly begins to sweat. He's got to get this question right because everyone is now looking at him and not the woman that came in who was a sinner. The attention is now fully on Simon to get the right answer. And Jesus would have used here some words. Luke records it. He's using the word love here, agape, which wasn't actually a common word to use. Jesus made it his own. And so did the early Christians made that word their own. So he would have kind of puzzled a bit. Well, what are you really saying, Jesus? You're using a word that's kind of, well, beyond back. Probably in Wycliffe's English was the last time it really had a popular use and not still that common. And you're picking up this word and then saying, hey, which one will love him more? Well, hmm, um, hmm. So you can imagine Simon. And Simon didn't want to look the fool. Have you ever been asked a question? And you don't want to look the fool? Think about that for a moment when you read this passage. Because Simon has invited Jesus to then say what he wanted to say to Simon and now taken it back and put all the pressure onto Simon. And so in the same way that or the word that Jesus used to introduce the question, Luke recalls that now 
the floor was quiet for Simon to speak. Same word as answered. And of course, Simon being Simon, and I guess none of you guys will have done this. Think about that for a bit. Simon starts with, I suppose, I'm not 100% sure here, just in case, you know, I could be wrong, I suppose, if I get this right, um, I suppose the one he forgives more. And Jesus reassuringly turns to him and, and Luke recalls it as a matter-of-fact statement. You have judged correctly, or you have rightly judged, depending on the version that you've got. And you can imagine Simon sits back and reclines, and I'll have another one of those on the table. I got the question right. Yes, oh, I look good. But Jesus used a word, a religious word, for forgiveness. Charis, oh my. We get our word charis from it, joy. Um, it's translated forgiveness here in your version. It will be forgave, forgive, that kind of context. And it's a very much a religious term. The, the Pharisee or Simon would really understand what it is. It's kind of to forgive but not really forgive. It's more like that's forgiving motion in a, in a religious sense. And so, oh, I, got, I, got, I got the question right. Simon's happy. All the people sitting around the table are happy. He's used the correct word. It means, yes, oh, yeah, it's, it's gone, but it's not really forgotten. It's more like we've done the person a favor to forgive them. And that's often how many people forgive. Well, we do a favor, and yeah, but we remember it. We'll we'll still hold him accountable. Now, there is a sense of accountability in forgiveness. If someone steals from you, you're not going to trust them with lots of money. You're not going to put them into a position until they build trust again. Trust and forgiveness are two very, very different things. But here, they're happy with that word. Charizomai. And Jesus says, to Simon, you've done, you've got the right answer. Oh, wow. Everyone seems to be happy. 44, he turns to the woman and says to Simon, I think this is so funny, the, the way Luke records this. <coughs> he turns to the woman. This is the first time that we actually see here that Jesus turns to look at the woman. But it's kind of a sense that he's reclining and he's now turned to the woman, but his mouth is pointing to Simon. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. No, no, you really do need to visualize this. Do you see this woman? Now, hang on a minute. Let's just take the context actually read into it correctly the way that Luke has recorded this this is a sinner that has come in a prostitute she's not dressed correctly she's cried on Jesus' feet 
swap bodily fluids, if you like. She's cleaned his feet with her hair. And Jesus here, it would imply at least, didn't turn to look at her, didn't pay any attention to her, did what would be normally cultural, completely ignore her. Yet everyone else knew what was going on and Simon in his heart said, well, hey, if this guy's a prophet, he'll know what manner of woman this is. Get the picture? Then Jesus turns to, to the woman, but speaking to Simon and says, Simon, do you see this woman? I can feel that Simon begins to sweat a little. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil or special oil. Therefore I say to her, not to Simon, but to her. Her sins, which are many. Now, bearing in mind, he's talking to a Pharisee here. Yeah? I'd like to say that I'm in the state of no sin. This woman, who sins are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. Now, it doesn't come across in the English. Lovely word that's used. It's actually fun to actually kind of see it in a more classical Greek sense than the New Testament. So, I'm sorry, if you've got kind of check me up on strong speak, go to something slightly more classical and it comes out. And it's emphimi, which is a lovely word, and it literally comes from away from me. It has the sense, certainly more in the classical sense, of picking up a ball and throwing it as far as you can so it's completely now out of your reach. It's a lovely kind of picture. It means to go away, depart. It has been used in some senses of divorce. So sometimes some of the um, documents about this time use this word in the sense of where there a divorce has taken place. They use this kind of word. And so Jesus says, hey, this, see this woman who sins so many, but they are forgiven. They are now taken and thrown outside their reach. He doesn't use charisomai. Oh, we've done her a favour. Yeah, we will knock the slate clean. Thank you very much. But be careful of her. He totally and utterly throws it completely away. For she loves much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then she turns to her, 
And what a statement. This is the basis of, if you like, the ancient part of a church service, of the absolution. Your sins are forgiven. Not that, way hey, we do you a favour. Yeah, you believe in Christ, so yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll knock, knock that one off. A bit like bartering. That's charismai. No. Your sins are now taken from you completely. They're outside of your reach. It's amazing the number of Christians that when we talk about being forgiveness or being forgiven, actually really don't know what they've been forgiven from. That's why when we teach Bible college students to give thanks, the number one thing that we say is learn to give thanks for the redemption that you have in Christ. To give thanks that you are forgiven. Now, this word, when you apply it within the Christian life, I often ask people to go through and say, hey, how much time do you spend thinking about the mistakes that you made in your day? Especially when you're on your own. Or it's just before you go to sleep. And you magnify all your mistakes to disqualify yourself. What you were doing is only accepting God's forgiveness at charizomai and not that, hey, I now stand forgiven and my sins are now out of my reach. See, when we talk about repentance, people think forgiveness and repentance, are they linked? But really, when you understand true forgiveness, repentance becomes a joy. Because repentance is changing the way that I think. It's not that I have to magnify my sin. That's self-centeredness. Anyone missed that point? That's self-centeredness. But I magnify that Christ has forgiven me. So therefore I can change the way I think. James tells us if you can think it, you can do it. The sin, as a seed in your heart, will grow and give birth to death. But that's put it and change it around into if I bring forgiveness into my life and it comes and brings and sprouts, then it brings forth kindness. You know, we started by talking about John G. Lake. He went about into a plague-ridden situation to help not to tell people they're wrong not to criticize them but to help if our christian faith is real then we are the most blessed people on the face of the earth we are the people filled with most joy because we know that yes we are forgiven and we can move forward in that, into the joy of knowing the full redemption, righteousness, all the new creation realities that are the very foundation of the Christian life. But if that's where it leaves you and doesn't bring you and move you forward, you will never experience the full joy of what it is to see forgiveness given to someone else. The full joy of our eternal hope. Let's just carry this on a second. Your sins are forgiven. 
Now, 49, you can imagine, <laughs> these are a bunch of religious people that knew what it was to do the charisomai forgiveness. And they pick up on this concept. And those who sat at the table with him began to say, who is this who even forgives sin? Remember, they were happy with charisomai. But Amphile, they were not so happy about, hang on a minute, what you are doing is you are removing sin from the equation. Who is this man that can claim to do that? He's my saviour. He's taken my sin. And if I bring this into the New Testament, which really it should be, It means that Jesus has taken all my sin, my guilt, my shame in his body on the cross and taken it to hell. And then he rose again in the newness of life. You see, when we talk about being righteous in Christ, it's not something that I've now got, I've got to the destination. That's where we begin. That's why, through the Christian history, the absolution has always been part of a Christian service, which states you are forgiven. But notice what happens to the woman and what she's told to do. Then he said to the woman, so now he's just dropped the bombshell. They're all saying, hey, how can this man even forgive sin? You know, we just had an example of religious forgiveness. And Jesus now uses this word that means to take sin and throw it out of your reach. And here's this prostitute that has come in and he's just told that she's forgiven. That's not exactly etiquette. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now think for a minute. When you go to sleep tonight, when you're thinking about this virus that's going around, <coughs> go in peace. Who's greater than this virus? Paul said, hey, if I live or die, well, which is actually better, but hey, I'm living for your sake. What does it matter? I am the Lord's. So I want to encourage you, read this passage carefully. As you meditate on it, find yourself in a place. Yes, we can talk about all your sins of your past, if you can remember them all. I can't, so don't worry too much. But learn what it is to give thanks that you're forgiven on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey, I'm forgiven. I now live. And some people say, hey, John, you're teaching sinless perfection. Well, so did John Wesley get accused of that one. No, I'm saying how great my God is. That there's not a sin that I have ever committed that the cross couldn't forgive. That in Christ, I am forgiven. It's something real. It's something that I can stop and begin to give thanks for. 
But you know, one of the greatest things about this truth brings peace. Because it means, yes, I can laugh in the face of death. I can laugh in the face of a virus. Whether I get it or not, it's irrelevant. I am the Lord's. It gives me a foundation that I can move solidly forward. And as Jesus said to the woman, go in peace. I can go in peace. Even to bed. Even to stand in the cold. Wherever I find myself in, I can go in peace. And that supernatural peace that the world needs at this time. So as a believer, can I encourage you? Understand what it is to know that you are completely forgiven. And please, 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 don't magnify your sin above the cross. Oh, let me explain that one. If you have to think about what you've done wrong, Again and again and again and again, what you are actually doing is you are magnifying your sin above that of the cross on which Jesus died. You're saying, in pride, is that a bit strong? Never mind. In pride, my sin is too big to be forgiven by Jesus. No, it's not. Humble yourself. Lay your life down as an offering before God. And you will see amazing miracles happen. This lady's life, I believe, was completely changed. She went in peace. I think the village will talk about this because this is shocking news. Hey, not religious forgiveness. Well, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, well, you might know. This is or your sin thrown away from your grasp. But if you want to hang on to your sin and magnify it and even make it bigger, well, that's pride. Repent. Change the way you think and accept what Christ has done for you, that you walk in the newness of life, that you can have peace in this time, knowing whatever happens, It actually really doesn't matter because of what Christ has done in us. And more than that, as we progress on with this concept, you will find that people around you will begin to start getting healed. And probably not in church. Just like John G. Lake. But if you don't make it personal, it doesn't work. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you'll transform us by your word. But above everything else, Father, I really pray that we'll understand the power of your forgiveness. And Father, that we can forgive people that have wronged us. And not only wronged us, but Father, we can just lay our lives down and say, now use my life for your glory that Jesus may be glorified and lifted high in me, that the world might know that this virus is insignificant to eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.